This is Dynasty Portfolio Weekly, hosted by Scott Connor. Welcome back onto the trading floor. And for this week's show, we are going to focus on anti-leverage trading. And you may wonder what that means. I've done a lot of content in the past talking about leverage trading. Look up the word leverage, understand what it means, and then try to grasp the anti-leverage idea, which is what we are going to talk about here. And in short, anti-leverage means you are giving up the leverage in a trade. And the best example I can give is a situation where you are giving up players at the same position, but you feel that one might be a little undervalued, but can perform almost as well as the one you are trading away. So you are getting back, say, a wide receiver. You are giving up a wide receiver, but you are also adding on a piece to your side of the deal. You give up a receiver, you get back another receiver, which you are betting can fill the same spot that the one is that you're trading away, and you're getting back a second round pick. That would be the definition of a leverage trade. Those are the most common that I make, and I'm going to talk more about those in next week's episode. But for this, we're going to talk about the idea of an anti-leverage trade, where you are giving up the two pieces. You are getting back the one piece. And it's not going to be what you think. This is a portfolio move that makes the most sense at this time of year. So you might immediately think, well, sure, I'm loving to consolidate two pieces that aren't that good for something that's great. It's a start eight league, and I'm giving up two average pieces to get a stud. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm referring to anti-leverage deals where it actually seems like you may be losing the trade, but you're doing it on the margins or you're doing it based on some constraints or calculations that are in your favor because it's February. So I'm going to give three examples of anti-leverage trades that I am trying to make across my portfolio right now. So the first one is the draft pick move up trade. And we're not talking about moving up from the 104 to the 103 or something of that nature. We're not talking about a massive trade. That's probably a bigger trade that involves pieces that take a little bit more calculation and a little bit more specific context to make. We're talking about the trade where you go through, and I just released an episode on Destination Dynasty doing a four-round best ball mock draft, but there's a ton of content creators a lot that you may be consuming their content right now that are doing mock drafts that are going through and going through the exercise of where do they think rookies are going to slot in. They might even be using an actual NFL mock draft to base their super flex rookie mock draft off of. I know Ray and Jay Rich do that on Wake Up. There's a lot of other content creators that will use a real mock draft from somebody in the media or somebody that's connected in the draft space and actually do a rookie draft based off of that. I think that's a good place to start. The idea being, though, if you do something like that and you have some conviction or you've been able to develop an idea of where your tiers are going to be, doing an anti-leverage trade to get some picks into those tiers or doing an anti-leverage trade to get out of a tier that you feel they're all going to be the same. And I'll give an example. Let's say you think there's going to be a tier break of receivers that get good draft capital in the mid to late second round. Let's call it the 208. You may look at the typical 208 from years past and go that 208 and 301 
and the 304 are not that different, right? But in this case, you may opt to say, okay, can I add a future third to the 301 to go get the 208? Push comes to shove. Can I add the 301 and the 304 together to get the 208? And that's a very common deal that if you catch the right person in the right number of leagues with the right roster construction where maybe they want to take multiple shots, maybe they look at that deal and say, I'm going to get multiple shots. I'm willing to do that. Because right now, they don't really know what the tiers are. But more importantly, you may catch somebody that hasn't developed their own conviction on a tier yet. They haven't gone through and done the exercise and said, all right, I have to stay in this range because they may not know. To be fair, you may be wrong on this, but I think finding spots like this and the reason you would do it isn't necessarily because you know that those are going to be the tiers. You could be wrong on that deal. However, you may be up against certain things. Too many draft picks. Too many roster players that you're already holding that you don't have enough spots for. Like you may be up against a numbers crunch where actually there's some extrinsic benefit of you doing an anti-leverage trade that's going to not force your hand later. Because the worst place you can be is you're up against the clock. You have to cut somebody, especially if you're following some sort of roster construction principles, just to make a draft pick. This has been a mistake I've made in the past. I go, okay, I'm about to draft a backup quarterback in the rookie draft, right? Roster construction. I like backup quarterbacks. But who am I cutting? Ah, I have to cut another backup quarterback. Seems a little redundant, right? Like you wish I would have done something different with that pick before the problem became evident. So if you look at your waiver wire, if you look at your constraints in your league, meaning how many players you can carry, what roster limits do I have to cut down to, this type of deal makes sense now. Where it makes less sense is probably during the season when you've already been able to kind of see what the season's going to look like. Are you going to need those roster spots? You're probably not necessarily just rushing to deal two random thirds for the best team's second round pick, right? It doesn't always make sense to do that at other times, but it makes sense to do it here. The second move, the anti-leverage trade to get into a threshold. Receivers are the easiest thing to mention, but I've released some content. If you go back and listen to Destination Dynasty about wide receiver thresholds, how you calculate those, you have to have a little conviction. We have a tool on DestinationDebbie.com, the Trinity Tracker, which gives you kind of an idea of how to tier receivers. I literally did a Destination Dynasty show talking about wide receiver tiers and the wide receiver threshold. But if you have two receivers that you feel one of them might have a little ADV, Ray always uses the term ADV, artificial dynasty value, but you don't necessarily feel they fit into a threshold. Let's say somebody like Jonathan Mingo, for instance, Quentin Johnston, for instance, Jamison Williams, Jahan Dotson. There's a lot of names where you can cite and you go, I'm not really sure that is a threshold wide receiver. I don't feel comfortable counting them as one of my threshold receivers. Can I add to them? to get another receiver. Now, it may be a receiver that other people may view as, okay, maybe that guy's not a threshold receiver either. So someone may get the offer. You send them Jamison Williams in a second for George Pickens. I'm just using an example. And they may squint and go, well, you know what? I actually don't mind that because I'm getting a second. And if Pickens and Williams are close, I get a free second out of it. 
Now, for me, I'm looking at something like the Trinity saying, Jameson Williams' Trinity is awful. George Pickens' Trinity is great. But you look at something like keep trade cut, and you go, maybe a second actually bridges the gap on that trade. Plug it in. It's pretty close. So that would be a deal where on paper, it's anti-leverage. But the goal is you're moving one of your players that you do not see as in the threshold into the threshold. And that would be the reason to do an anti-leverage trade at the same position. But it could be cross-positional as well. And that's going to be the third example. Now you're talking about players that you feel their value is higher than what their actual dynasty demand is. So we're saying a player that everybody tells you you should be able to get a first for. Uh, you should be able to get a first, even if it's a 26 first for Rashad White, for James Cook. I'm just giving examples, again, of players that for me probably fit into that range. But you go out and you try to sell those guys, even for a 25 first. And I'm not as interested in a 24 first because a lot of times the offers you will get in 24 is, I'll give you the 112. I don't even want that. Like, this is a good class. I'm interested in having those late picks. What I'm not interested in is selling good players for the 111 or the 112. I'd rather have the 20-30% chance that your playoff team from this year regresses next year. Things go negatively for you. I want you to put a little money on the line here that your team that finished in third place this year can continue that. And I'm always willing to bet against the volatility and variance of a future pick for that reason. So forget about any first being 2024. Don't even care about 2024. We're talking about players where if I said, can I go to my league, put Rashad White or James Cook on the block and get a future first? A random, ambiguous, fairly up-in-the-air future first. And the answer is most likely no. Now, part of that is it's February. The demand for players like that is not that high, right? People would rather, smart dynasty managers, I should say, would rather say, you know what, I'm going to hold my 25 first. Because I think it's not even that I'm not getting a good player. I am getting a good player in Rashad White or James Cook. But can I use it to get a better player later? Can I use it to get a better deal later? But I want to make deals like that. I want to make deals where I can trade a player straight up for a random future first like that. Now, in a lot of cases, you can't. Someone will not part with the first until you give them the anti-leverage option. Here you go. I'll kick you back the 212. I'll kick you back a third. I will throw in that extra pick that acts as a placeholder, but also gives the illusion in the trade that you are adding to their side to make the deal just a little advantageous to them. Now, it's true. If you're giving them a 212, if you're giving them a future third, you are giving them another asset. But what they don't see is the asset that you're getting back is in the form of that lottery ticket that you just got. You accomplished turning what I would call a, not a dead zone player, but a player that is just an innings eater, right? James Cook, if you have him, that's great. But he's not somebody where you go, he's probably going to cost me my league next year if I trade him away. So he's the type of player where you go, if I can convert him into a random future first that I can stash for later, I want to do that. But a lot of those deals in sharp leagues don't go down until you add the leverage piece. And I've been guilty of this in the past, where I'm unwilling to add the leverage pieces to kind of 
send the illusion of the deal to the other side to make it seem like they're getting just that little bit. It's the old notion of just ask for a third back in every deal. Well, there's deals to get done if you just throw in the third. And this is one of those where you're sending a player that has value that you perceive to be higher than the demand in your actual league. Ah, man, he's probably worth a future first, but I really don't want to part with my first for that player right now. And that makes sense. I would never recommend sending a future first for an innings eater right now. I'll send the 112. I'll send the 111. Not my 25 first. Because if it goes wrong, that's the 105 next year. That's the 106. And I would have rather not spent that now. I would have rather waited to see, okay, can I get a little more information on my team before I spend that pick? But if you entice somebody with the leverage piece, maybe you throw in a free running back. Maybe you throw in something that you know that manager likes. Yeah, if I throw in a third, if I give him that late second, it'll get me what I want. But really, the value I'm getting is something they don't see. I'm getting the mystery box. I'm getting the lottery ticket of that future flexibility because I'm getting back a future first for a player that would have never had a market to be able to return that. So those are the three examples of anti-leverage trades. There's a time and place for them. There's a lot of times and places where you want to just do leverage trading. But in these examples, especially in February, where there's a lot of things up in the air and a lot of things that are going to change with the market, I actually value getting some of these deals done if it gets me to the point of what I want for the rest of the offseason. If I can turn a James Cook and do a future first, even if I have to give up a 212, 211, 208 even, or a future third, I'm okay with that. If I can move up into the draft to a spot that I want to be, because I never know what that can give me, but what it could give me is the choice before somebody else gets the choice because they have the two lower picks. Getting those kind of assets with seven months before the season to be able to act is a way you can take advantage of anti-leverage trading today in this time of the dynasty year. Check out everything over at Destination Devi at DestinationDevi.com. Check out the podcast feeds on Destination Devi Radio and Wake Up with Ray G. Subscribe to both feeds. Like and share the video here on the YouTube channel. And of course, patreon.com backslash allgas or destinationdevi.com to join the Discord for more bonus content.